But we turn our attention to Daniel. We'll finish chapter one. I told you we would go quick. At least I should say I hope we do. So pick up the text with me. Uh, We went through one through eight. And then this morning we'll look at verses nine through 21 of Daniel chapter one. And it says, and God gave Daniel, verse nine, favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are or were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for 10 days, and let us be given vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in the matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine. They were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with with them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king uh, inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the king's palace. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What a familiar text, I think, for many of you, and what a wonderful text. I think I've been struck here in the past weeks how familiar the scene at Babylon is, as it is in our own day and the culture in which we live. I mean, we too you would agree, live in a strange land. We live in the state of California with strange customs. In fact, we would say that we live in a toxic culture that is really contrary to everything that we believe. There is a term that has been coined over the years, mostly in some theological structures, called culture wars. And that is the term, and it's been coined to describe the clash of values between those believers or between believers and those in the world. And certainly, I think you would agree that those who embrace the culture, who claim Christ, are clearly wrong. And I think maybe in the world in which we live, I think that's become true. Some who embrace the culture so much, you would wonder if they even love the Savior they profess. But believers are often left with two alternatives. It was made famous by a theologian by the name of Richard Niebuhr. And Niebuhr said in his book, Christ and Culture, he said these are the alternatives. And I think it's still true. He said we either fight or we flee. We either fight or we flee. We fight and we boycott what we don't like. And in some circles, at least in past history, we even protest what we don't support. So we either have a flight mentality or we flee. And in his words, we become Amish and hide, if you will, in our holy huddle so as to never be stained by the world. But praise God, amen, that Daniel refused to compromise and 
You don't have to compromise either. There's great hope for us in the Word of God. And our theme today is God's favor and our faithfulness. God's sovereignty, but our faithfulness in the midst of His promises to us. And so I began even last week with how can we live holy in an evil world? And we stated there that we can. And the answer is one word. It's by integrity. Integrity, that word just means whole. It means undivided. It's the ideal of being complete. In other words, a man or woman who has integrity is not duplicitous. In fact, integrity's opposite is hypocrisy. It's compromise. I don't know if it was true of you, but it was true in my uh, elementary education. I had to read these works called Aesop's Fables. How many of you have read some of Aesop's Fables? I had to look back. Was that in junior high? And I think it was all the way back in elementary school. I went to a little tiny school in the San Fernando Valley called Limerick. And I think Aesop, at least in one of his fables, understood the price of compromise. He speaks in one of his fables titled The Bat. And it was about a time, he said, when the beast and the fowls were engaged in war. And the bat tried to pacify both sides. And when the birds were victorious, he said he was a bird. But when the beast won, he assumed that he was, he assured them that he was a beast. But soon his hypocrisy was discovered and he was rejected by both the beast and the birds. And consequently, he hid all day and could only appear at night. He clearly was playing in that fable the the hypocrite, but it became exposed And again, when you think of Daniel as we turn to chapter 1 here, he shows us how to live without hiding. He shows us how to live without compromise. And he lives with integrity in a wicked culture. Now, you remember just briefly all of chapter 1, verse 1 down through 21, is that God's sovereignty is on display in the life of Daniel It's on display in the life of his friends in the king's court. As you get a grasp of chapter one, definitely it's not about Daniel, it's about God. He is sovereign. He is, as we just sang, the ancient of days. And then there were two features in chapter one. One is Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power was clearly at the hand of a sovereign God. He rose to power, the year was 605 BC, but it was at the hand of a sovereign God. Remember, look at verse 2, where it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar thought it was his military power. It was his astuteness, if you will, on military war. And at this point, right here at this time, he was in control of certainly that part of the world. But again, you remember at verse 2, it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And I mentioned that the Lord there, the term Lord, is not what you would, I would often think of, whether it was Yahweh or Jehovah. He doesn't use that name. Here, Daniel, the writer, uses the word Adonai. And Adonai speaks of God as the sovereign master and ruler. In fact, you can't miss it. Three different times in the opening chapter, God is depicted as sovereign. You see that there, that the Lord gave Jehoiakim. Look down at verse 9. We'll see that in our text, that the Lord gave Daniel favor and compassion. Look down a third time in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature. He providentially blessed them. And here is the meaning of Daniel, and certainly the first chapter, is that God is sovereign over every nation. 
He's sovereign over every ruler, even when he doesn't appear to be so, like in verse 2. He is sovereign in every relationship, even when that relationship might threaten you, like Daniel found out in verse 9. In fact, that is the theme here. He's in sovereign control in our world right now. He's in sovereign control of our state even right now. He's in sovereign control over your life right now. And certainly this was penned by this author to bring you comfort, to bring you a realization that you haven't missed God's purpose in your life. You find yourself, I do, right now in the midst of his control. He is the ancient of days. But here clearly, Judah goes into captivity and Nebuchadnezzar, it appears, wins the day. But behind the scene, the Lord, Adonai, is the one who is in ultimate control. So it moves from being them taken away into captivity and the scene moves in verse 3 down through 21 to the king's palace. And so I take you from here, Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power, to secondly, Daniel and his friend's rise to power is at the hand of a sovereign God. Certainly, we're going to hit Daniel, his character, but here it's his sovereignty of God that is over his life. And we begin looking at those and we stop, but there are seven distinguishing marks regarding Daniel. And I just do that to kind of reveal what's happening in this narrative. And we looked at the first three. We looked at his pedigree. We noticed in verse three that he was of the royal family and nobility. And then we look secondly at the privileges, both in language and literature that he was given. And then we noted last week that their names were all changed from biblical Hebrew names to those of Babylonian gods. And so what Nebuchadnezzar was doing was trying to reel these youths in, if you will, and he did it through physical isolation. When he came in and conquered at least the first wave of deportation, he took away the use. That was in 605 BC. Daniel and his friends were carried away. But he doesn't show the force of power. He pulls them into the king's palace, but he physically isolates them to get them 900 miles away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then the second thing he does is he teaches them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So he not only employs physical isolation, but secondly, he uses mental indoctrination. He's going to go ahead and put them under all this massive learning. And then the passport, he gives them new names. There's identity alteration. So rather than, you know, treating them like prisoners, oh no, it's just the opposite. He's going to put them at the king's table. He's going to put them with the king's food. He's going to put them with the king's vintage wine. He's going to instruct them. He pulls these 15-year-olds out for this kind of indoctrination in a very big society that is utterly toxic to everything they knew. But then we noted the fourth, and this is where we left off from the pedigree to the privileges, passport to the, I'll call it the purity of heart. And you remember that in verse eight, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or even with the wine that he drank. And we just stopped there, but we noted briefly that he accepts the education. He's in school with all these other teenagers being indoctrinated. He takes even the new name that was given to each of them, changing out that biblical name for a Babylonian name. But here... He rejects, if you will, the food and the wine. And we stated, why would he do that? Why was the names and the education okay, but the food and the wine, he puts his foot down here. And we noted that we believe because it was a clear command against eating meat that was offered to idols. And it would appear here that what Daniel did is he drew the line where the word of God drew the line. 
what you have here, at least in a human response, God's sovereign, but the purity of his heart. He made up his mind. He determined in his heart that he would not defile himself. That word defile is used 11 times. It spoke of religious and moral defilement. And we noted that the food was first offered to idols. And we believe that the wine was poured out as a libation first to the idols. Then it was brought to the king's table. And those Babylonian meals were co-mingled with pagan worship. And nothing was eaten or drunk until it had been first dedicated to a pagan deity, and it was clearly disobedience to God out of the book of Leviticus, out of the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, you can look on your own in the New Testament, Acts 15, this was an issue. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, they were eating meat offered to idols. It was addressed by Paul in Romans 14 that some people were violating others' conscience, even in the New Testament. So certainly there was a, it wasn't kosher, you could say that, but I think uh, a commentator by the name of Lederic uh, may have given something else that I think is helpful. He said that often the food and the wine is, is a symbol of relationship. In fact, he, he pointed out that in the Old Testament, a covenant was often sealed with a, a meal. Certainly, you remember when Joshua and his men ate a meal with the Gibeonites, a bond formed that could not be broken, even when they learned that they were tricked in Joshua chapter 9. You remember one of Saul's son, Mephibosheth, ate at David, David's table like one of his sons, 2 Samuel 9. On the other hand, to refuse to eat a meal was a sign of a broken relationship. Jonathan, it would tell us, rose from the table in fierce anger and he ate no food when he learned of Saul's attempt to put David to death, 1 Samuel 20. So eating and drinking together is often a part of celebrating a covenant. So for Daniel to eat the king's food is to accept his fellowship and to give that king, Nebuchadnezzar, total allegiance. In other words, it implies a covenant of undeserved loyalty and even obedience. And Daniel and his friends will serve Nebuchadnezzar, but they're not going to give him absolute loyalty. This can only be given in their day and in our day to God. So Daniel accepts part of the Babylonian culture, but he rejects giving Nebuchadnezzar the allegiance symbolized in eating his food and drinking his wine. For them, faithfulness means insisting on the primary allegiance to their God. And it's perhaps true that not only was it offered to idols, but here they draw the line. They avoid in their thinking, perhaps, that they, don't, that they are avoiding being fully assimilated and resisting total conformity. So in a sense, they are citizens of two worlds. They live in the Babylonian world, but they never surrender their loyalty to God. So Daniel puts his foot down here in this principle of purity of heart. And I, it's hard to look in this and say this like dogmatically. But I think everything for Daniel and these young men rides on this decision. I mean, certainly I'll take you through 70 years of Daniel's life. But I think here was the test. And at this point... In this decision, he made up his mind. He decided in his heart that he would obey the word of God. He's 15 years of age. So what does he do? He, in humility, requests an exemption from what would be compromising to him. Pick up the text in verse 8. Therefore, after he, he uh, resolved that he wouldn't do it, he asked 
verse 8, the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. Now, he, he goes to the chief eunuch, okay, and he doesn't pull out the gluten-free card, okay? He's not on a special diet. He doesn't tell the chief eunuch, I'm going on a hunger strike. He went to the chief eunuch personally for an exemption. And as he asks for this exemption, cast your eyes on verse 9. There's an important clue there. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. His favor was upon Daniel. His compassion was upon Daniel. And the text says that God gave Daniel both the favor of the chief eunuch and the compassion of the chief eunuch. And the thought there of the word compassion is the sympathy and the sight of the chief eunuch. Does it not even remind you biblically of Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis 39 that the Lord, it keeps saying this, was with Joseph and showed him, did the Lord, steadfast love and gave him, Joseph, favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so, beloved, at least here, there is a heart that loves God. He purposed in his heart, in his mind. He trusts the Lord. He wants to obey the Lord. He has no difficulty, does Daniel, making the right choices and trusting God to take care of the consequences. So he makes this request, and a number of scholars have went to the degree that says he wasn't rude, he wasn't ballistic, he didn't go in anger, he didn't lawyer up, he goes personally, he may have even went privately to this chief eunuch. You say, well, what happened? Look at verse 10. It says, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the usurer of your own age so you would endanger my head with the king? So the purity of heart leaves, it leads to at least a fifth distinguishing mark. I'll call it a persistence in obeying God, a persistence in obeying God. He is persistent here, is he not? I mean, Daniel, and I mean this positively, is working the situation, but he's not manipulating the situation. He didn't give up his effort, if you will, to not defile himself. He desired to obey the Lord, and his position on food and drink could lead to a number of consequences. It could lead to the death of the eunuch, certainly. You're going to endanger my head. It could have led to all the, the, the death of Daniel and his friends. When he didn't like what the wise men in chapter 2 couldn't convert the dream, he was going to destroy all of them in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, when those young boys wouldn't bow down to him, he heated the fire up in 319 because Nebuchadnezzar was enraged. And so here is Daniel making this appeal. The chief eunuch is concerned for his life if they come out looking worse. So he could have faced the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, he could have faced the alienation from his peers. I remember I, I told you that were, there were probably about 50 to 75 youths taken away. But for some reason, these four come out clean without compromise. And I suppose if this was known amongst the others, there could have been alienation from the peers. Like, who does Daniel really think he is? Why would he make such a request? I understand the kosher laws in Jerusalem, but we are political hostages in, in Babylon. Does he, does he really think he ought to push this point? I mean, I learned a, a word a few years ago from one of our high school staff. She said to me, well, that's just FOMO. I said, what's, what's FOMO? She said, fear of missing what? Out. I mean, it just can paralyze young people today. 
You just feel like you're not part of the group. You're not part of the crowd. You're not part of the team. You're not part of the herd. You're not respected. I don't know. I mean, Daniel could have thought a lot of things and maybe some of those other youths were pushing him. Not only could you die, Daniel, but secondly, alienation from your peers. Thirdly, maybe some would have thought there could be loss of advancement here. Hey, Daniel, Hey, Azariah, hey, Mishael, this isn't the way to climb the corporate ladder. Are you sure you know what you're doing? In fact, you may be jeopardizing the future of Israel because we've been placed here somewhat and we think we can influence Nebuchadnezzar down the road. I wouldn't die on this hill. You see, all these things could have come up, but he didn't want to defile himself. Ashpenaz said, I could lose my head. But here, he's, he's persistently wanting to obey God. I even think, what if he, well, maybe some of his friends thought, you're going to eat vegetables? Are you serious? We're at the king's food table. We're at the king's food court. We're eating the best food, maybe they said, in all of the world. We're drinking the most vintage wine, which, you know, Daniel, has some health effects uh, positive on you. But here, here's this undergirded principle in chapter one. God is sovereign. That looms over all. But I want you to know that Daniel was persistent. And God blessed Daniel And Daniel was obedient all at the same time. And so, beloved, God's sovereignty doesn't negate our human responsibility. So Daniel said in that text that we read in verse 11 through 13, can you just give me 10 days? So you say, well, what happened? Look at verse 10. Excuse me, look at verse 14. So he listened to him He was now talking to another person. Actually, go back to verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, this is the persistence, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So this is the persistence here. Now you could say, well, God's sovereign over them and I'm gonna agree with that. That overrides, that's the main thesis, the main narrative. But there is a persistence in this man. He does not give up. You say, so he said, give me 10 days. You say, what happened? Look at verse 14. So he listened to them. This is the steward now. He says, he listened to them in the matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the days, it says in verse 15, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's, who ate the king's food. So his uncanny persistence, just for 10 days, was blessed by God. Their appearance, it says, was better. It used uses the word fatter. Don't think of our 21st century thought of fatter. Fatter here doesn't mean bloated. You know, when you walk out of a restaurant and you've eaten too much at heirloom, maybe in Fresno, okay? Here, fatter is just healthier, if you will. The test was successful. Just in 10 days, they were healthier and more nourished. And so look at verse 16. So the steward, amazing, took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them what? Vegetables. Now, when it says that they took away, did this steward the food and the drink and gave them vegetables, I take it not just in the 10 days, certainly that. He took it away for three years, okay? This was the test for 10 days, but when it says that he took it away, I just assumed all the three years they were eating vegetables. What is vegetables? It's the Hebrew term zara, and that it would include fruits, it would include 
grains, okay, and it would include bread that would come from grains. It was common food. Now listen, I'm not going to make a, a, a deal here about a vegetable diet, okay, about a Daniel's diet, because I think we know that's not the point of the narrative. It really wouldn't make much difference. In fact, you would probably think if they were eating some meat and drinking some wine, that at least from a food, you know, potential, that it would look better on the other guys than these four. I think we understand it was God's blessing to Daniel, not the result of the food, right? I mean, the point here in this, in 10 days, is this is a supernatural miracle. God is not blessing here a vegetarian diet, but in his sovereignty, he honors these faithful servants who refuse to even compromise. So rather than being ravaged because it was vegetables and water, they were better than the rest. And so, beloved, someone who is marked by purity of heart, someone who manifests, secondly, or here is that fourth or fifthly, a persistence to obey God, often leads to a sixth distinguishing mark. And we'll just call it providential blessing. Providential blessing. You say, well, what happened? Look at verse 17. As for these four use, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel, just only Daniel here, verse 17, had understanding in all visions and dreams. So now we're back to our theme. God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 9, it says God gave them favor and compassion to the chief eunuch. And now in verse 17, these four use, you could see it there, God gave them learning and skill. He providentially, let me say this, blessed them with four gifts. Obviously, these are sovereignly give them, given. Number one, he gave them intelligence. He gave them intelligence. It says there in verse 17, learning and skill in all literature. I mentioned this last week, but he gave them the ability to reason. And he gave them the ability to classify information logically. In other words, it was a gift of God to these men. So on the one hand, Israel, the southern part of that kingdom, is taken away into captivity. But God's got these four youths in a strategic position in the king's palace. And though he was marked by this persistent obedience, here he is providentially blessed and he gives them intelligence. Secondly, verse 17, he gave them, it says, insights. You see that there. He gave them, it says in 17, in all literature and he uses the word wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom was broad here in the text. It included the arts. It included the sciences. It included the languages. And he not only gave them a skill of intelligence, but he gave them the wisdom that comes with this. I mean, Babylon was probably at this point more advanced than any other part of the world. And these four had insight into every branch of literature and wisdom. I was just at the board meeting last week and I said hello to the athletic director and um, his wife was next to him and they've been married for, I wanna say 25 years and she said, Pastor Scott, I was in your prayer class at the Masters University and, and what was funny about that, it was probably 30, year, 30 years ago, I was teaching as a college pastor at the university in an adjunct class on prayer, and I thought, oh, I remember you. And the reason I remembered her is she was one of the best students in the class. I thought she was a freshman at the time, and I remembered her name, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that, because out of all the people in the class, she stood out along with a, a Bible scholar at this point, Todd Bolin, who uh, is known virtually all over the globe for his, his material on Israel and the land of Israel and so forth, but I remembered her. 
But can you imagine this though? That he, he not only providentially blesses them, he gives them intelligence, then he gives them insight, he gives them wisdom into every branch of literature. Thirdly, he gave them, and I'll just use it in verse 17, but it's Daniel, he gave him interpretation. In other words, Daniel had understanding in all visions and all dreams. In other words, God's so sovereignly in control, he placed this 15-year-old boy 900 miles away from a, 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 a part of that tribe that was in the process of being in, depor- in deportation, three stages at it, and he would make him the vehicle of his divine revelation. You say, what is that? That is supernatural interpretation on all the prophetical events that we'll look at in the rest of the book. You say, well, like what? Well, he blessed Daniel to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, chapter two, next week, we're in there. In other words, he had this dream and Daniel said, oh, I could reveal that, the God of heaven will show me. And he was about ready to kill all his magicians and his enchanters. And so Daniel would interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. He interprets in chapter 4 the image of the, the beast that no one else could do, but Daniel knew that interpretation. Then in chapter five, there's handwriting on the wall. You remember that many, many tackle you farson and nobody else could interpret that and Daniel could interpret that. So here is the blessing of God, the providential impact of a wonderful life. He gave them intelligence. He gave them insight. He gave Daniel interpretation. You say, well, what happened? He gave them forth impact in verses 18 through 20. Impact. At the end of the time, verse 18, when is that? That's not the 10 days. That's the three years that was set aside earlier. At the end of three years, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, imagine that. I think the king was just, was it crowned? Yesterday? Okay. I I think I saw something on that. But can you imagine this? After three years, these boys are now all brought in and they're brought before the most vicious king. You say, well, how vicious was he? Well, you remember when he captured uh, the southern kingdom for the third deportation in, uh, actually, it it was the second deportation. He took Zedekiah and right before all of his sons, he murdered each of his children. And then what he did is he put out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last memory of what he saw would be his sons slaughtered right before him. That's this guy. That's Nebuchadnezzar. So they're brought in, verse 18, and the king spoke with them, verse 19, and among all of them, I I take it all 75 was, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Now, I don't know if we can make much of this, but their Babylonian names aren't used here. Their their biblical Hebrew names were used. And maybe Daniel's just trying to say, oh, they sought to give us an alterate, you know, give us an alternating identity, but they didn't. And when these boys stood before the king, they, he found them so much better than anybody else. In fact, how much better? Look at verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about, the, about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. It's amazing. Literally, you know, it says 10 times better. The Hebrew term just speaks of, if you will, of of two hands or, you know, total hands. They were, what, what the Hebrew is saying here, were equal to 10 people respectively. I mean, it wasn't even close. And Nebuchadnezzar is stunned Nebuchadnezzar, three years eating vegetables and some grains and some fruit. Three years, he's amazed. 
In fact, the text says they were better than the magicians. Who are those? Well, it, it's funny. When you begin to trace that word out in verse 20, better than the magicians, there's a kind of a twofold thought here. The word literally means of a magician. You have something conjure up in your mind, but it means literally to cut or to, to scratch. And it was used for engraving, if you will, and for writing with a stylist. However, a stylus. However, these magicians were scribes by trade, but in reality, they were sorcerers who dealt in black magic, if you will, and the occult. And when he interviewed these boys, these guys were 10 times better than even those who I'm sure were demonically inspired. Then he uses another word. Look at it in verse 20. He says, they're better than all the all of them, all the magicians, and here in verse 20, the enchanters. Maybe you're holding a translation, and it says conjurers. These were people who created spells. In fact, some people put the etymology of this word back to the, the thought of snake charmers. In fact, these enchanters were involved in magic spells and they were involved with formulas, if you will, connected with the demonic world. And so as he interviewed them, he found them better than all the magicians, all the conjurers, all the enchanters in his whole kingdom. I think it's like the New Age movement today with their channelers and with their mediums. But Daniel and his friends excelled. They far surpassed them because of God's providential blessing to these four. And these four, it says in verse 19, stood before the king and entered into the king's personal service. I mean, this is incredible. He's likely 18 at this time, okay? If he started at 15, and this is the end of three years, these boys are seniors at Emmanuel. Seniors at Fresno Christian. Seniors at Kingsburg High. Seniors at CVC. Seniors in their homeschool movement. And far from just running with the crowd, they say we're not going to defile ourselves with the king's food. The test enters and out they come and they stood in his personal service. It was God who raised them up to demonstrate his sovereign power and preserve Israel. So even though Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's ruling, God is and he's using these men and this is a setup to the rest of the book. Listen, beloved, God has his Joseph in Egypt to preserve Israel from famine and from starvation. God has his Esther in Persia to preserve the Jewish nation from extinction. And God here has his Daniel in captivity to proclaim his sovereignty over the nations and his sovereignty over your life. Like, where are you in the midst of this? You say, well, it's unraveling for me. And it's been difficult because of this financially, because of this diagnosis physically, because of this relationship that has gone astray, because of the death of someone key. But Daniel here is writing to encourage us. Oh, no, no, no. He's the ancient of days and he's sovereign over everything that takes place. So he's distinguished, if you will, by pedigree, by his privileges, by his new passport, God protected him. But he's here distinguished by his purity of heart, by his persistence to obey, by providential blessing. And there's a last mark, and it's in verse 21. It could be the best of all. Look at it. We sometimes just read it and skip over it. And Daniel, verse 21, was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So there's a pattern here, seventh, of faithfulness. And I am pointing that out of Daniel. Here is God's favor, but his faithfulness. He was there until the first year of Cyrus. Daniel ministered in Babylon all the way from when he was taken away at 15, at 605 BC, all the way to King Cyrus, likely around 535. He was there for 70 years. 
So when it says that in verse 21, and it uses verse 1 and 2 as a marker, here Daniel is wanting to show what happened. He spent the rest of his life in this foreign country, overseeing kingdoms and leaders and kings, all the way until his 85th birthday fulfilling at that point, and I'll come back to this, to Jeremiah's prophecy spoken before the exile took place in 2512. It will be 70 years when they are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares the Lord. It was exactly 70 years Jeremiah prophesied that they would go into Babylon for 70 years. And as soon as Cyrus came into the kingdom as the leader of Persia at that point, he let some of the Israelites go back to their land. And so here was an incredible pattern of faithfulness in his life. He remained faithful all the way, probably until his 85th birthday. He was faithful throughout his life. He lived to see the downfall of every kingdom by, the, by whose power he had been taken into captivity. And though the chapter begins with Nebuchadnezzar's power, Daniel outlasts them all and sees the reversal that places Israel back in their own land. And it was all prophesied. And I, I wrote this in my notes, and I think we can get it. One of my kids said, Dad, don't use that. I, say, I told him, it was my son who was with uh, me last week, my older son. I said to Kyle, though Daniel was living in Babylon, Babylon was not living in him. Though he himself was physically in Babylon, Babylon was not in him. He goes, Dad, that reminds me of the jungle book. I, I said, what do you mean the jungle book? Well, that line, you can take the boy out of the jungle, but you can't take the jungle, right, of Mowgli, out of the boy, right? And I said, okay, okay, maybe I shouldn't use it, but I, what I liked about this is he's living in Babylon, but Babylon's not living in him. Listen, let me say to you very strongly, but pastorally, pleasing God always outweighs the temptation to please man, right? To put that in your hearts, that pleasing God always outweighs the temptation to please man, or to please the herd, or to please your team, or to please your friends. Listen, beloved, Daniel would rather be eaten by lions than compromise his integrity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would rather be consumed by fire than compromise their integrity. Listen, I, I think here's this principle emerging, knowing God's sovereignty overall history allows you to live with hope in a strange land because he's going to win and he's already won the battle and one day it will all be over and we're going to know that so we can be faithful and filled with hope in the midst of this world in which we live in. I was reading a story this week about a wealthy Englishman who had a very rare collection of violins and there was one instrument which was of such magnificence that the eminent violinist, his name was Fritz Chrysler, desired to buy it from this wealthy Englishman. But the owner didn't want to sell it. One day Chrysler came to see him and asked the owner at least if he could play this marvelous instrument. Chrysler could play with such skill, perhaps at that point unequaled, and the request was granted, and the great violinist picked up the violin, and he 
played it only the way that Fritz Chrysler could play it. He forgot about himself, said his biographer. He poured his soul into the music, and as the master artist played, the Englishman, the owner, stood marveling. And when Chrysler finished, not a word was spoken as he loosened the bow and the strings and placed the instrument in its case with the softness of a mother putting a baby into its bed. The owner said, Mr. Chrysler, you can't buy the violin. He said, take the violin. He said, I have no right to keep it. It ought to belong to one who can make beautiful music with it. And I think here in a parallel, God wants to make beautiful music with your life and with my life. But you've got to give him your whole life and make an uncompromising stand on the principles of the word of God. Have you done that? I, I, don't, I think the only way that he would say he would not do it is I think he made these decisions earlier. I think based on his upbringing, based on the word of God. So how do we live in a compromising world? How do we live holy? Do we embrace the culture? Certainly not. Do we fight against it? I, I, I suppose in some ways, yes. But I think when he said fight against it, he's talking about violence. Some people have taken to violence in our own day. Do we flee from the culture? Do we run to the hills? Do we just remove ourselves from the world in which we live in? Do we become hypocrites and live like a bat who hid all day only to come out at night? Or do you dare to be a Daniel who would live with this kind of purity of heart, this kind of persistence and obedience, the one who was providentially blessed by God and the one who had a pattern of faithfulness? But I do say to you, I don't think Daniel's the hero here. I think it's the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? You talk about the perfect pedigree. He's part of the triune God. There was never a time when he did not exist. He was of the Father, never born, certainly came, took on humanity, but he was from all time surrounded in the perfect antiphonal praise of all the angels. And he left that, though. He was given all the privileges. He's part of the triune God. He is the son of man in Daniel 7 who will come up to the ancient of days. He had all the privileges. His passport read, God is my father. I am the son. This is the Holy Spirit stamped, marked all throughout scripture as part and parcel of the one triune God manifesting himself in three persons. Purity of heart, it was the Lord. He perfectly obeyed for you. He set his face KJV, like flint to go to the cross. You talk about a purity of heart. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. You talk about a persistence in obeying God. It was Christ perfectly. He obeyed in every aspect of his life. The scripture says repeatedly that he never sinned. Providentially blessed with every blessing, but then he turns to give you every spiritual blessing in, this, in the heavenly places in him. And then the pattern of faithfulness was lived out to his God for our benefit all of his life, especially all through the garden when he said, you know, it, not my will, but what? Your will be done. He said, I could have called on a legion of angels to come rescue me and he refuses. And so he's the perfect pattern of faithfulness. So Daniel's marked by these, but they were perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May you dare to be a Daniel in the day in which we live. Let's pray together.